Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The word unique is overused. I was taught long ago by a newsroom copy editor, don't use unique unless you absolutely know that it is the only one in the world. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that no one is creating a night of magic quite like Ossie Wind, an Israeli-born magician who has created the show Ossie Wind's Inner Circle at New York's Judson Theater. It's a small, intimate setting where the audience is an integral part of the show. Why is it unique? Regular playing cards? That's for other shows. These cards have your name on them. Unique indeed. The birth of this uh, show started as just a thought. Um, there's a, a place at the Magic Castle in Hollywood um, where magicians perform. In, there's a close-up room, there's a parlor room, there's a big stage where people do some grand illusions. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place that most magicians love to go. It's a mecca of some sort. Uh, and I, when I was young, I performed there quite often. And then there was a gap of about 10 years that I couldn't make it got busy with some work. And then my friend and I said, let's, let's do it. Let's just, the both of us will go there and we'll get to see each other's shows, critique each other, come up with new ideas. And two weeks before I went and did what we call the close-up room, um, I'm walking with my friend in Central Park. He says, so what are you going to do at the close-up room? I said, I don't know. I'll improvise. <laughs> he says, nah, that's not good enough. You need, you need an idea. So on my phone, I have like lots of ideas, like concepts for shows. So I'm, we're walking and I say, oh, look, there's a, the audience creates a deck of cards and the whole show is done with that card, the deck of cards that they created with their names and maybe some drawing and colors. Um, and we go, that's a cool idea. So we sit down. This is literally two weeks before the show at the castle, which is a 20 minute set. So it's a short show. And I go there and I do an entire set with the deck of cards that the audience created prior to the show. It's all, they write their names on blank cards. And then everything I do is related to each person in the audience. Now, I thought it's a cool idea, nothing more. I do the show and the response is crazy. I'm like overwhelmed by how well received it was. Uh, to the point that there's a three-hour line to see the show, which I've never seen. <laughs> like I, I went to the bar to get a drink, and I'm like, "There's a, I have to go around." And like, the, and it was so flattering, and and they basically told me, "Hey, there's something here, something that could be expended and and maybe become a full hour and a half show." So that's the birth of it. That's how it started. Because sometimes artists, be they magicians or writers or musicians, they, they don't get an instant gratification on an idea. To get that that first time, what was that like? So, you know, there's lots of ideas where you, you have this idea and you go, wow, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be great. And then you do it and it's terrible, right? There's ideas where you think it's terrible, ends up being really great. And there's all the in-betweens. And, and this idea I thought was a good idea. I didn't think it was uh, more than that. So I think as a creator, because you're so close to the subject, you're so close to the idea, you're very biased. 
you you can judge it truly and honestly as, as someone who, who sees it for the first time. And I think that's what happened. I, I, I had an idea that I thought was good. Cool. Great. Uh, but they, they, they basically, the audience told me there's something more here. Keep investigating. Keep looking. And, and, I, and I think that's a, some, it's an interesting collaboration. So my collaborators are my audience. And I was listening. So because you had that, when the idea comes to do it in a kind of a theater that's created in New York City, a small theater so that everybody, it's a very intimate affair. Oh, yeah. As you're preparing that, is the power of that first time, does that kind of get you through any kind of doubt? Or is there still the notion of, is this going to fly, really? So there's absolutely lots of doubts because the show at the castle was 20 minutes. Now, to do 20 minutes is easier. Now, I was thinking, can I stretch it to an hour? So I tried it here and there. I, I, I was doing gigs and, you know, book, private bookings. And I said, let's, let's try it for an hour. And it was a struggle. And I, I tell you something that, that was very funny. So I went and did the show at a convention called Magic Live. And it was a way for us to test a longer format of that show because we, we set a rule, you know, it's very much like origami. Origami, you take a piece of paper and you say, you have to work with a rectangular. You cannot cut, tear, you cannot glue anything. Now go ahead, make a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but and, and I love that. And I, I often talk about restrictions. With restrictions, you're forcing yourself to come up with something you could have not thought of without the restriction, right? So if I said to you, okay, uh, build this tower, but don't use nails. So the Japanese found ways to connect wood in very clever ways, which are beautiful. Uh, in a way, the structure is as pretty as the result. Um, but I, I love restrictions. So the restriction I made, I cannot use any props. I can use a deck of cards that the audience created. That's it. Now, in a way, you're shooting yourself in the foot because, hold on, what else can I do with it? How much can I stretch the, the idea? So, Magic Live, we got an opportunity to do a 45-minute version of it. So my, my director, John Lovick, and myself, we work on it, and we flashed it out to what seems like a 45-minute set. We performed it Magic Live. The response was wonderful. People seemed to really like it. Success. Now, two months before we opened the Off-Broadway show, we think we have 45 minutes. <laughs> we don't. What felt like 45 minutes was actually 35 minutes. Now, 10 minutes <laughs> is a big difference in showbiz. Because um, we thought, oh, we just, okay, 45 minutes, another 30, 35 minutes will be good. But now realize we have way less. And we panicked because we, the poster is already hanging. <laughs> you know, tickets are selling. We don't have a show. So the deal is we panicked and we start adding lots and lots and lots of stuff. And then, again, we're going back to the audience. 
when we start when I started performing this show, it was good. I did not I wasn't very happy with it. I'm never happy with anything. My vision for what this show could have been mm, not great. And slowly again, I'm I'm a collaborator. And my my biggest uh, collaborator is the audience and the audience start to teach me what works, what what where am I moving in the right direction and when am I not a when it hits them and when it doesn't and the only credit I will take is that I'm a listener I I do listen to my audience it's it's a big part of what I like to do um, it's not a monologue it's a dialogue I, I often tell my PAs where I, I love my my dear magician friends who work with us and help us I, I tell them you know I am a selfish performer I'm not just performing the show I'm also attending the show. Hmm. So I want to have a blast, obviously. And if I'm not enjoying it, then why bother? Yeah. So I think because of this, uh, call it an attitude or an approach, um, I was able to fine-tune this show so much uh, because I had, I had hundreds, hundreds of collaborators. We've done 380 shows so far. In every show, they taught me one more thing, mm-hmm. and and I and and I think that's why it 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 became and it was nice for a lot of people who work with us closely to see the progression, to see how the show almost has a life of its own. It's a living organism that com- keeps morphing and evolving, and and it's and I'm always I just maybe. Something I adopted early on in my career is that nothing is ever finished. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I tell you, it's, it's a tangent, but in a way it's not, you know, I was, I was in a convention and somebody introduced me as like, oh, a master magician, something like that. And I, I, and I immediately rejected that. I said, no, I'm not a master magician. And he goes, why? Just take the compliment. And I said, no, the moment you say that I'm a master, it's the moment you shut the door on a st- I'm a student. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I still study. And if you think of yourself as a master, it's the day you say, okay, I'm good. I'm done. I don't need to learn. I'm a master. <laughs> I'm an expert. I, all those words to me um, violate what I believe in as, as a performer, as a magician, as, as an artist, whatever that you constantly want to keep the door open to learning. It, you humble yourself, not for the sake of being humble. It's because I want to keep learning. I want, I want, I'm a student. And I, and I always talk about a, a painter of mine that I really love, Lucien Freud, who says that every time he approaches the canvas, he treats it as if it's the first time he's ever painted. And to take it even further, the first painting ever painted because he wants to, to leave behind all these formulaic, you know, conclusions like, oh, I'm bringing all the knowledge. Of course you bring all the knowledge you have. But if you approach it with this ver- first time kind of attitude, you, you're still exploring. You're still playing. Oh, what can I do with this? A wonderful writer that I know, whom I've interviewed a couple of times, award-winning, tells me that when she sits at her apartment in Brooklyn to write the next book, she has all of her awards 
behind her because she has, if she had them in front of her, those awards are not going to write the next book. So you know, true. blank canvas, so to speak. So, I mean, each night for you, is it a blank canvas or is there some notion of I've done this work a lot. And so I know that it's going to work out. I relate to that so much. And I tell you, maybe I, I took it to an extreme. Um, every award that I ever received, I either got rid of it or gave it away. Uh, and, and I think, and a lot of people, people challenged me about this. You know, I just got uh, an award. It's I appreciate and, and very prestigious award, uh, Magician of the Year Award from the Magic Castle. That's pretty much as good as it gets. It's okay. it's our Oscar. That's it. <laughs> you know, so of course I was honored to take it, to to receive. Uh, I literally looked at it for a few minutes, and I said, "This is a beautiful. It's a be By the way, it's a beautiful wand that uh, wood carved by John Gon, one of the, the greatest builders of magic." I looked at it, appreciated it. I closed the box, and I gave it to my director, uh, John Lovick. I said, "Thank you." So I did not need more than the two minutes with it. And, and I think the reason I, I I reject or prefer not to own those and to look at them, maybe f for a similar reason, they, they they further me away from having that student set of mind, that naivete that I think you need to have a little bit of it. Um, when you approach something new, you know, exploring it like a kid for the first time. I, I don't want something to tell me, oh, you're great, you, you're, you're good. Okay, sure. Maybe, maybe something like that, but I don't know, it's, it's intuitive. Your show, one of the beauties of your show is that it is also a show that includes a lot of your history, both growing up in Israel, coming to New York, falling in love with New York, going out into Washington Square Park when you got nothing except for a talent for magic. And you incorporate that into the show. In that sense, it enhances the show tremendously. And I'm curious, is it your idea to do that early on? Or is there some suggestion from the people around you, the creative team, like you have a compelling story, why not have that be part of the show as well? So in, in general, I always thought that... Um, being biographical, I mean, and, and I believe every performer is biographical, whether he spells it out and says anything. You you bring yourself to the stage, no matter what. You know, you, the way you speak, my accent, you know, the way I communicate, it reveals something about me, right? So to me, sharing a little bit of who I am and what how I got here is part of the show. In a weird way, I, I want to bond with my audience and I want to I want to be vulnerable and make them trust me. Uh, here's the deal. A magician is an illusion within itself. You, you come, you do a couple of tricks, you're automatically the smartest man in the room, even though you're not. But the illusion is you know somebody that nobody in the room knows. So automatically you, you're being perceived as the smartest person in the room. I'm not. <laughs> um, so to me, those things, you know, to remind them that I, I'm a human being with fears, with, you know, uh, struggles, with defects, whatever you want to call them. I don't know. It, it reminds them 
the, you know, I'm a person who, who wants to connect first. You know, the magic for me is a vehicle to connect with my audience. So that, that, I think that's where it comes from. When you were growing up in Israel, who was the uncle, as I understand it, who was like <clears throat> the first one to say, let me show you something? Yeah, Neil Noriel is uh, my uncle and dear uncle who, you know, one of those uncles that dedicated so much time to to me and my brother to like take us around, show us in museums and music and movies, like so uh, a dedicated uncle, like uh, unbelievable. It's, it's, it's. Think about, I'm not as good of an uncle as he is. I wish I was. Um, and he, he toyed with magic, he had a magic book, and he started doing things here and there. But he was smart because he, he the tendency for an amateur magician is to do a trick, and two minutes later, ah, here's how it's done. But he didn't. He just did the thing and never showed me how it's done. And, and purpose, he, he would hide the book. I knew where the book was but was really on a high, high shelf. <laughs> but it was smart. It, you know, it created, it glorified the book even more so. It was physically and symbolically a hard to reach book. I couldn't, I, I wasn't allowed to touch it or open it, let alone read it. Right. Um, and, and I think intentionally, maybe unintentionally, he, he, he made me appreciate the value of a secret something you don't know and the craving to know is so it's a magical experience you know there's a solution somewhere out there there's a there's a there's a, a, a secret to to a magical thing that you could do and you can't get it easily you have to fight and i fought <laughs> with like i remember taking a chair and it was uh, in haifa my my grandma they lived in those old houses where really high ceilings. I wish I had them here. Um, like to reach, you really needed to, a, a ladder, right? So I put a, a chair on top of, I, I slid the table towards the bookshelf, put the thing in like, and my grandma caught me. She goes, hold on, hold on I get it for you. <laughs> she got a ladder, she got it for me. Um, I think it, it, it was nice because um, it made me feel what we want to, what I want my audience to feel is the mystery, to feel, to, I, not to know something is okay sometimes. Mystery is good. You don't need to always know everything. Where, where's the fun in that, in knowing you know, knowing how it's done? Now, uh, what role did the... There's a store owner, apparently, that's a, a part of the story as well, or a store that you would go to? Well, so, yeah. So, obviously, that's the, the, the point where it, things start to change because, yeah, I learned from the books and this and that, and I knew some amateurs and, you know, you know beginner's tricks. My uncle, I remember once we, we passed by the, the store, we wanted to go in, it was closed. Again, vaguely I remember that, but we ended up not going to the store with my uncle. But I did remember now, oh, there's a magic store here. So my father who lived, who worked, you know, probably 10, 15 minute walk away from the store. And I walked there. There's a bearded guy with a cap and I'm just looking around and it's, like I, every object on every shelf looks mysterious. I want to touch it. I want to see what it could do, you know? But I'm afraid to do magic because I, the fear of getting caught is there. 
when you do a trick to someone, there's a fear that they're going to discover how it's done. And because of it, I never thought I could be a magician. I, I was a timid, shy kid, and I'm not going to fool anyone, right? I'm not a magician. So it was pretty much me and, and the guy behind the counter. And he says, so what's the deal? Are you into magic? Are you this? I said, yeah, a little bit, not much. He says, let me show you something. He shows me a car trick. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> how did you do that? He says, well, I can't tell you. It's a secret. Um, but you can buy the secret for 50 shekels. <laughs> so then I learned magic could be purchased. <laughs> so I had 50 shekels. I said, okay. You got my money. And now there's a, there's a thing about magic that is important to understand. When you experience magic at the beginning and you have no idea how it's done, it's, it's pure magic. The moment he teaches you how it's done, there's a bit of disappointment. Because yeah. you, you thought it's more and then it's less. It's like, oh, really, it's that stupid and that... I, I didn't catch that. Um, you feel a bit like an idiot. You feel like, wow, I should have known that's the secret or something like there's, a, there's, a, there's something disappointing. So the curve is amazing disappointment. And when does it start to go up? When you realize that what you thought is stupid and primitive and, or, or too, too simple is actually very complicated. And now it takes many, many years to, to gain that appreciation again and to go, oh, it's not just a secret. It's the presentation. It's connecting with an audience. It's creating, a, it, it's almost like comedy. You know, everybody can tell a joke, but some people can punch, you know, like deliver a punchline where it's funny, hilarious. And some people, mm, it's okay, right? They just told you the, the joke, it's like information, nothing more. The information is funny, not you. So, so now, after years and years, uh, uh, my, my appreciation grew a lot for magic because I understand the psychology, the sophistication, the layers of it, the showmanship, the, the storytelling aspect of it, and so forth. You mentioned that you were a shy, timid kid. How mm -hmm. much of that is, and you discuss this in the show in a beautiful way, for those who don't have an understanding of the the notion in Israel of Ashkenazi versus Sephardic, mm -hmm. uh, how much of that is you raised in a Sephardic family from yeah. Middle Eastern background as opposed to Ashkenazi of sure. primarily Eastern European background? And, and the Ashkenazi was the people who kind of formed the country and were running the show. How, how much of that is uh, at play as you were a kid? So, yeah, so... A bit of a history lesson here. Yeah. Um, so my grandparents, they came from Iraq and Syria. My mom's side from Iraq, my father's side from Syria. So they were the first generation to absolutely feel the discrimination. They were fillers, you know. They realized that we need to populate the country, you know, with and, and to bring the Jews back to the homeland. And they were not treated fairly. Now, it's it's probably true for any nation that, you know, it's hard to accept someone who's different than you, someone who has a different accent, a different, they, 
language, different culture, different music, everything is different. Um, and it happens everywhere. I see it everywhere. Whenever there's, there's a new population coming in, people get scared. Oh, you know, this is not our people. And they, they, it, so they probably felt it the most. My second, the second generation is my father and mother. They, they were born and raised in Israel. But they grew up with Arabic culture more than I did. They, they speak Arabic fluently. So they probably felt it as well. And I'm the third generation of that. I, so by the time I was born, it became much more normal for, for us to coexist. You know, Sephardic Jews will, will marry Ashkenaz and back and forth, which back then, if, if it happened, you know, families would freak out. You know, how dare you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, marry a Sephardi Jew or opposite. Um, but now it's really blended and it's, it's, it's softened and it's not as much of a big deal. But I think... I suffered the residue of that um, problem, and it affected me for sure. I, I guess I, I, I bought into this idea that uh, the Europeans were more civilized and so more educated and more this, which in in a, in a weird way maybe is partially true. You know, they went to university and this, and the Arab world was not as advanced. You know. Um, uh, with education and so forth. So I think, look, it's it's something that to this day uh, I contemplate. I, I think about it and, and, and it, it affects me. I, I, I'm, you know, there was one woman, uh, Jewish Israeli, I don't know, but she, she texted me after the show and she says, I loved your show. When you said those things, it hurt me. And I said, oh, wow, why? And she says, you know, you, you know, there's already all this opinion about Israel and all that, and you just adding to the fuel. I said, you know what? It's my truth. So if I can't share what's on my heart, then I don't want to express myself at all. You know, I am a very, I'm proud Israeli, I'm a proud Jewish person, you know, my, what's happening right now in Israel breaks my heart to see this terrible situation that I, you know, when I was a kid, I, 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 I my idol was Itzhak Rabin, and we were, we, he, he was a, a peace activist, a promoter of peace, and all this talks with Yasser Arafat in Camp David and in, in Oslo, we were filled with hope that this conflict would end. We're so optimistic about it. And the day he was assassinated, I was crushed. It was a, such a, a, a pivotal day in my life when I, when I you know, and, 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 and again, I was probably a 10-minute walk, walk from where he died. When he were from where he was murdered, to start realizing, wow, we're getting further and further away from peace. It's it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. and my heart breaks also for any innocent Palestinian, any innocent child in Gaza. Also breaks my heart. It's terrible. It really is, and um, I can't believe it's 2023 and we're still talking about it. It's like the exact same conversation we had. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah. And how you handled it in the show, I will say, was just perfect. 
Not too much, not too little, just perfect. Well, thank you. Can I, can I say something about that, uh, if you don't mind? At the beginning of the war, it just happened in, it, it was devastation. Uh, by the way, any person who has a heart and would listen to how people were murdered, mutilated, raped, you can't, forget religion. Take identity out of the equation. A human being, a human being. I don't want to tell the stories because it's so graphic, so, so graphic. But just to give you the, the idea, it, it's, it's killing a human being, you know, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a few months old, in such a brutal way that I don't understand how people can't at least condemn this specific act. Like when I walk down the streets in, on the Upper East Side and I see uh, one of those kidnaps banners and there's a kid, 10-year-old, kidnapped in Gaza. Again, forget religion, forget the conflict, forget whose fault it is. How can you write on his face and deface, you know, the kid who's, who's, who's not even old enough to form his own opinions? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. And again, I, oh, I wanted to say this. I'm sorry. So it was a week into the war, and I was furious. I was angry. I was sad. I was heartbroken. And something kind of beautiful happened in the, in the show, because I knew I'm going to talk about it. And I said, I'm not going to plan anything. I'm going to speak from my heart and say what's on my heart. And I'm doing the show. And you know how we tend to generalize, you know, all Muslims, all Jews, all this, all that, right? And I'm seeing a Muslim lady, she has a hijab, she's definitely Muslim, sitting in the audience. This is like a few days into the war. Mm -hmm. And she has the most beautiful smile. She's engaged. She's laughing. She's having a great time. And... She gave me hope. She gave me real hope that we're in this, all of us, all together, human beings. You know, take the labels out. We, we need to, to defeat evil and we need to defeat um, cruelness. And I, you know, only God knows that I really want this to end. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't want another human being killed over anything. So anyway, she reminded me, and that's why, based on her and, and that experience I had, when I when I talk about it, I, I often tell a lot of people who are not Jews, not say, don't take a side, don't say I stand for this, I stand for that, say I stand for peace. There's a notion that you come to New York, be it from around the world or from anywhere in the United States, and you can remake yourself, yeah, uh, because yeah. you come to New York and nobody knows that or people don't know you, maybe you have a friend or two or some family, but you can be whoever you want to be in New York. So when you go out to Washington Square Park for that first time, you recall what's what, what, you're, what's, what you're thinking in your head about, uh, am I about to do this? You know, so, so it's, 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 again, I don't want to, it's got too much time because it's a long story, but the, uh, the idea of moving to America brewed in my head for many, many years because 
I knew the opportunities. I knew the things I could do here that I couldn't do in my small, tiny country. Um, so I already was somewhat established as far as, you know, I had, I had work, people booked me, I had good paying gigs. Uh, all of a sudden I come to New York and I barely speak English. I, 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 I can't make ends meet. I eat at McDonald's for, you know, the dollar menu. That was because I, I said, okay, $2, it's two burgers, $1 fries, one, you know, and I, the, 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 the lime, the apple pie for another dollar. I was like in heaven, $5 was a lot of food. I was really that, uh, but the funny, and then I, I did balloons in Toys R Us, you know, for tips. Doesn't get more glamorous than twisting balloons at Toys R Us. I mean, that is show business right there, my friend. Yeah, but for me, it's a setback. You know, I, I, I literally gave up already on something that I, I had, you know. Imagine you already have work and this, and all of a sudden I start from, the, from scratch. Did you have moments of like, what did I do here? No, no, not once. I enjoyed every second of it. New York did something to me or activated something in me that, that uh, it's almost as if I was meant to live here. A true New Yorker's love-hate relationship, that's where I am now. Uh, the, the things I love, I really love, and the things I hate, I really hate. It's, more, <laughs> it's just polarizing with every year, it's just more, but, but the, the diversity of New York City is just unbelievable to me, to this day, unbelievable. I think falling in love with a, a new place, a new culture, and, and that made me not regret, even for a second, to start all over. To, 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 to me, that was very, uh, and enough of a sacrifice, you know, to, for something that was really special. For a long time, you've been called a magician's magician. And when we say something like that about a particular field, oh, that person's a musician's musician or an actor's actor. What's yeah. usually between the lines there, unspoken, is that they don't have a mass popularity, but they are respected among their peers. And so I'm curious, when you have heard that, would you prefer, yeah. hey, that's all great. Thanks a lot. But I'd prefer the mass popularity. Thank you. Honestly, um, I'm not motivated, never was or am motivated by fame, money, recognition. Um, I'm, I really love the art. I love what I do. Uh, I love connecting to an audience. Uh, these are the things that really uh, make me feel happy. So, you know, there's, there's people, for them, you know, somebody did an article about them. Yes, it's flattering. By the way, I never read my articles. Uh, I never read, I, I know what's in him. I know this is, because I also, you know, I was interviewed, so I know what I told the person. <laughs> uh, so, but, but the point of it, after it's printed, I don't read it. Again, I've been challenged on this. I don't have a good answer yet. So in other words, the recognition, the award, I don't have awards. I don't read my, my, my articles. Uh, I watch the videos because I have no choice but to watch them. Because I, I don't even like to, like, we just did the Kelly Clarkson show and it aired today. And I have not seen it yet. And I'm, I always dread seeing myself on video. Always. I'm, I know I'm going to find something I'm going to hate. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so... Yeah, a magician, magician uh, is a is a is a nice compliment be because 
I think it illustrates that my passion comes uh, for the art and, 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 and what motivates me is, is what I think is, is could be a beautiful thing in, in a theater when you create this bond, this flow, that you feel like you brought everybody together in this intimacy and this, you can feel almost the love in the room. To me, that's, that is success. So a magician, magician is just, uh, and by the way, they, they made, I think, this comment because when I do, when I perform for magicians in conventions, I, I go above and beyond to try to fool them. Yeah. I, I want the magicians to be fooled too, but not because of ego, because I think in order to enjoy magic, you need to be fooled. You need to feel mystery. So my audience is in the know, so I'm going to use their knowledge against them as much as I can. So, so I, I take a, a great effort to, to do, sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't, but to do magic that maybe will fool them too. You're succeeding every night at the theater in New York. Uh, I would assume at those shows with other magicians, you don't say at the end, hey, if you want to know how I did it, 50 shekels, come on, let's go. Exactly. Yeah. Well, wait, I will charge way more. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Do you think that there are any lessons that you learned either growing up those early years in Israel or the early years in New York and going out to Washington Square Park in those years, any lessons learned that apply to what you do now? All of it. I mean, every day is a lesson. Um, I, I, you know, there's, a, there's like those seven, six, seven magicians that uh, they're young magicians who basically we needed ushers and people to sign the card and they kind of volunteered. They get paid a little bit, but they, they, they work with me closely and we, we have dinner every night and they're learning a lot with me as I'm working on this show. And it's, it's such a wonderful thing because they remind me. Because uh, you see the, 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 in their eyes how much they want to soak up and, and learn and, and, you know, and they ask questions in this. But it's good because they bring, they bring me with them to that state that I want to be, which is I'm learning. I'm learning and I'm embracing these learnings and, and lessons. And, and every night we sit down and we say, okay, this worked, this didn't work. Why? Or we do movie nights and, and, and after the movie we discuss it. We analyze it a little bit, or so, so sometimes you know we watch something that we don't like. We say, "Oh, this was not so good," and I say, "That's not enough to say it's not good. You need to tell me why it's not good." And we start discussing why is it not good. So I I think in my life I really seek uh, lessons. I always say, "Okay, I just watched the show. What did what did they teach me today? What did I take from it?" So every show I do, I hope. I walk away with knowing mm, something more. So I guess the biggest lesson is it's reinforced. Listen, just listen to your surrounding, listen to your friends, listen to your audience, and, and you, can, you can learn a lot <laughs> and be open to, to accept and change. Well, it's working. It's certainly working for the audience in New York every night, and I hope that somehow the show, people outside of New York get a chance to see it as well. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Asi Wind 
His show, Aussie Wins Inner Circle, presented by David Blaine, runs at the Judson Theater in New York through January 14, 2024. For information, go to aussiewind.com, A-S-I-W-I-N-D.com. I can't recommend the show highly enough. It is memorable. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.